And then I purchased um, the water-based inks. And the, the key holders, the uh, printmakers at the shop, they were pissed. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the show, and maybe they'll enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that truly helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merchandise, as well as access to bonus content. Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, check out the link in the show notes. Sign up and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. If you want to save a little cash and still support the show, you can do a yearly subscription that'll save you 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Hello Print Friends is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. If you've been following along on Instagram, and we really do recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with some of the most exciting contemporary printmakers on the scene today, they have created a brand new line of custom printing inks and additives to push your practice even further. Artists like Jay Ryan, who's known for his charming and distinctive style of concert posters, which he's been producing in the Chicago area since 1995. His limited edition Posse Acrylic Screen Printing Ink, Bird Machine Black, is available for pre-order now. So head on over to the Speedball Posse shop at speedballart.com and find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Susan Rostow, founder of Akua Inks. We'll talk about how early childhood experimentation in the kitchen and lack of options for printing safely while pregnant led her to produce the now wildly successful line of water-based inks as well as her own incredible personal practice that turns printmaking and book arts into intricate, interactive sculptures. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to build what you want to see in the world with Susan Rostow. Hi, Susan. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Wonderful. Here Hi. in New York, and i um, very happy to hear from you. Yeah, I'm so glad we could connect. As we were just chatting about, you mentioned that we might hear a subway going by every 10 minutes, which I think will just be wonderful New York ambiance, especially for people who I'm sure have visited Missing the City in the last 18 months. And um, Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll know that you're, you're really there. So before we dive in, as we were talking about, I've got many questions for you, and I'm really excited to to talk and get some history, talk about your practice, talk about Akua inks, all of it. But would you mind just giving a little introduction to yourself if anyone listening doesn't know who you are, where you are, what you do? Okay. Well, I am a multimedia artist and um, I use printmaking to um, create sculptural books and sculpture and animation. And um, 
I make my own materials. I've been doing this since I was a child, and uh, which is what led me to make Akua printmaking inks. Mm-hmm. And um, I originally made the inks for myself, and then it, the inks were acquired by Speedball in um, 2012. Wonderful. And I've stayed on with Speedball, and I act as a you know, freelance consultant with yeah. Speedball. And so... Where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia, but I was born in Brooklyn. So I returned to my home grounds Mm -hmm. here. And um, as a child, I was very curious about uh, cooking and food and um, art materials. I Mm. sort of combined making concoctions and painting with them. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) It started because my mother taught me to make my own paste. We ran out of paste and I had a school project in kindergarten and uh, she showed me how to mix um, flour and water. And uh, I was just, you know, thrilled by that, that I can make two things stick with food. Yeah. And uh, so then I started adding things to the paste and um, I would add ketchup to make red and then a little mustard to make (laughs) my orange to the red. And then I, it just kept going. And then I would paint with them. And um, then I started making my own tools. I used to use pretzel rods. <laughs> and um, I made my own Play-Doh. And I would attach the, the Play-Doh to the pretzel rod and draw with it, dip it into my concoctions. And that's where it really began. So when I did develop Akua, I, I kind of resorted back to that childhood memory of making my own products. <laughs> Oh, that's so that's so fascinating. You had you showed early genius as someone uh, <laughs> very interested in and in homegrown art materials. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so you had this sort of creative experimentation going on in the kitchen as a child. But then where did printmaking come into your story? Well, um, I think the first year then I was in art school, I had to decide um, to take drawing or painting or sculpture. Mm. And um, I figured, well, I can't just do one or the other. I like doing both. But um, back in you know the 60s, that was what you, you needed to do, focus. Right. And uh, so I figured if I take printmaking, it's sort of like doing both. You mm-hmm. know, you're working with metal, you're working with ink, you're working, you know, with a flat dimension. So that's sort of why I went into printmaking originally. Yeah, it's because you didn't have to choose. And it's it's actually really interesting to me to find artists who are printmakers, but then also sculptors as well, and, and how that overlap is really present. And I think it's because, as you say, some of the physicality certainly overlaps. The, the way you're manipulating a surface with a bit of a 3D mindset, there's a lot mm-hmm. of overlap more perhaps even more so than, you know, the mixing and the blending and the moving of oils on a, on a flat surface. It can be kind of a, a maybe more similar mindset for sure. But then, of course, you also get that element as well in, in the color and everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then so at what point did you kind of decide you wanted to take on making your own inks and, and why? Well, this is back in the 80s. You know, I grew up in the 50s. So um, in the late 80s, I was the artistic director at the Lower East Side print shop. Mm. And the first day I walked into that shop, um, it was all oil-based 
screen printing ink. And um, the first job that I took on there was to change it because water-based inks for silkscreen were just starting to develop. And uh, Speedball had a really good water-based ink. And um, so I threw out, well, I, I donated all the oil-based ink from the Lower East Side Print Shop to the Materials for the Arts program. Um, and then I purchased um, the water-based inks. And the the key holders, the uh, printmakers at the shop, they were pissed. Oh. They, they were not <laughs> happy with the change. Because back then, um, this is, you know, before we had computers and um what one of the programs that we, you know, did was we had um, local artists come in and they would print uh, posters and paste them, right. yeah. you know, billboards all over, you know, the Lower East Side. This is when the Lower East Side print shop was in the Lower East Side. They're in Midtown now. So it was a really community-based um, uh, print shop. And so the artists would go out if they were going to have an exhibition or if the theater Groups would have, you know, a show. They would print their silk screens and paste them all over. So yeah, they were yeah. afraid that the water-based ink was not as good and that, that the prints would run and we would have problems. Well, after a year, we discovered it was wonderful. And those <laughs> printmakers who were complaining about me changing over um, were thanking me. Yeah. So, so then after that, you know, the next task was an intaglioing because we also did etching and, you know, we did the full range. And it was, you know, I knew that that was going to be really difficult because there was nothing available. Yeah. And um, also you need to dampen paper. So, you know, water base was not quite the answer for that. And in the meantime, um, I got married. So this was like in the early 90s, like 1990. And um, then I was thinking of having a family. And I realized that there was no way I could go into that shop if people, Mm -hmm. you know, were Mm -hmm. printing with um, solvents and inks and, um, you know, that were oil based that, you know, really... There were a lot of in that shop. So I knew if I were pregnant, I'd have to stop working. The only thing I knew how to do was teach and, yeah. you know, work in print shops. So that's when I decided to leave the Lower East Side print shop. And I started in my own shop down the street because I, I lived like right down the street then. And um, I decided to make my own ink and I was making it for myself. I never had the intention of going into business or I have no background in chemistry my background is when I was five years old, yeah. I used to make my own thing. <laughs> so I used that. And um, so that's that's where it came from because, you know, the safety of having a child, you know, this mm. is New York City. We, we live in the same spaces, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, it was a small space. So I had to really think about that. So that's why I did it yeah. originally. And then so to actually take it on, I mean, was it just complete trial and error would you have resources and as you say it's you know it's the, it's the early 90s so you're not you can't just go to google and say hey siri how do i make safe intaglio inks you know this isn't an option um, exactly how did you take it on well there was the telephone oh. <laughs> um so basically uh, you know i did research i i knew how to make paint mm. and i started with um well, i was doing monotype at the time because like, you know, tackling on acids and things like that. That was like beyond what I could start with. So I started simple. And so I knew what I wanted. I just needed to make a ink. You know, I I needed an ink that 
would have a really long open and had really good quality pigments. So I, I based it on the history of um, paint. And I knew that one of the really good ingredients in a water-based, um, you know, watercolor would be uh, honey. So I started off back in the kitchen. And uh, so I, the, my first ink that I made was the Akua liquid pigments. Back then it was called Akua color. Um, and then um, I, I worked with that and I, I came up with, you know, a few bottles of ink, uh, four colors I started with. And then I started teaching with it because I knew that all the ingredients in there were safe. I selected pigments that I knew um, had, you know, safe reputations, you know, for no metal, you know, heavy, heavy duty metals and things like that. Um, so that's where I started. Um, and then later I came out with the Intaglio ink mm. and the, the manufacturing, you know, so when I was making it, I made it all by hand myself. Um, but as I was teaching, we kept getting, you know, calls, can I buy it? And eventually, um, I showed it at um, a, during a demo at uh, Southern Graphics. This okay. was back, um, I think it was in Cincinnati. Mm. And then that's when I met Dave Takach at Takach Press. And he was very impressed with it um, and uh, started ordering it. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, like, 20 bottles became a thousand bottles. Right. Yeah. And then what do you do? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I did was, you know, back then it was the yellow pages. Mm. Um, and so I was making it myself and I, I really had no concept of like how you manufacture. I wasn't going to go out and buy a factory. I wasn't going to, you know, start buying a building and things like that. Mm. You know, I'm just pretty much in myself and my husband. And my husband kept everything going because he he's a you know he was teaching at the time, and I was pretty much just developing the inks. So I'm one day I'm looking through the yellow pages, and I was looking to buy um, abrasives. I wanted carborundum in bulk, mm. and um, you know how fine the yellow pages are and uh, the the print. Yeah. And yeah. instead of abrasive, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Instead of abrasive, I wound up calling a company that sell or manufactures adhesives. Oh, <laughs> so I'm having a conversation that got the owner, you know, back then you talk to people on the phone. So the, the guy, you know, picks up the phone and I tell him I'm looking for carborundum. He says, no, we, we sell, we make glue here. Uh -huh. And I like to take every mistake I make and make a, a good opportunity <laughs> and learning experience from it. So I said, oh, you make adhesives. What kind of glue? How do you make it? What kind of machinery? You know, so I just kept asking him all these questions. And he says, you want to come down here? <laughs> and so I told him about, you know, what I was doing. So he invited me there. And um, so I saw the factory and uh, he did a run. But the problem with that was it was um, glue mm, and mm -hmm. you would walk on the floor and it was like walking on a mouse trap. Oh, wow. It was so sticky and it, he was so sloppy. So wow, that's like something out of a cartoon. Like, like I could just imagine like Tom and Jerry running into a, a glue factory <laughs> and the floor is sticky. Like that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that should actually happen <laughs> in real life. <laughs> I love it. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it yeah. was like. It was an animation. So uh, we we couldn't use him. It, it was it was more work cleaning up the the sloppy bottles than it was 
but what I did learn from him was the the language. Mm. I learned how um, you know what words to to use. And at this time, you know, Google was starting to happen. So then I started Googling. You know, the one word he taught me was toll manufacturer, and that's when you um. You know, you hire someone to manufacture, you're paying someone to manufacture for you. You know, it's like all these words that I didn't really know, the logistics, pick and pack. And so eventually I learned how to, you know, do searches, you know, and find people who would mix it. The problem was I had to mix it. Then we had to pack it. And then we had to ship it. And, you know, I can only do so much myself. So I, you know, I just made arrangements to have things go from one place to another. Um, and it was very, very challenging uh, to handle so many different aspects of, of not only making, because, you know, you're, you're, I was going, it was like having a dinner party and I'm making ink for four people. And then suddenly, you know, there's a thousand people showing up at the table. Yeah. You, know, you have to change certain things. Yeah. It's not the same. Well, I can only imagine even just like, you know, the very basics of like, oh, all of a sudden, like my raw materials, you know, you would need to now source them in a completely different way to get the volume and make sure that you can still get that volume, but sell it in a cost effective way. And then, you know, if things change when they're made in larger batches, like it really sounds like it'd be truly taking on an entirely, in a way, almost an entirely different project or an entirely different set of challenges. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm naive to this. So <laughs> if, if I were smart, <laughs> I would have been so overwhelmed because I would have thought ahead of time what I was getting myself into. But, you know, it kind of grew organically. And I just took one step at a time. And, you know, it just grew. I I never really um, did any advertising or made an attempt to sell anything. It just happened. Mm. So I just took one day at a time. And, um, you know, the math was a real challenge. You know, I can make mistakes on spelling, but, (laughs) you know, like adhesive to abrasive, but, um, you know, you add a couple extra zeros, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So I've had a few problems, but you know, you get over it and you just keep going. Um, so yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes. Even, even the name for Akua was a mistake. I I typed up yeah, that was a typo, but I already printed the labels. <laughs> what, so, was it, what was it supposed to be? It was supposed to say Aqua, A-Q-U-A. <laughs> and I so typed up all these labels and they said A-K-U-A. I must have some kind of, uh, you know, a switch over in the way letters go because the K became, the Q became the K and oh, the that is so D funny. became the B. So I, I go with it, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? So I said, that kind of looks good. So I kept it and it sounds good. So it, it does. You know, I, here I was thinking it was like, you know, a, a Japanese word for some sort of, you know, traditional, uh, you know, Zen concept of like purity or something like that. Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like, you know, that it, that it, it was, you know, something that really reflects 
you know, the, the what's behind the inks. And it was, yeah, aqua was, would, would have been, would have, but yeah, aqua, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, it actually is a Hawaiian word and it oh, is, is an African word. There's a band named Akua. So it's not like a, a brand new word. It's not like I made up like Haagen-Dazs, yeah, you know. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it's a word, but um, that wasn't the original intention. That's so funny. <laughs> So you had this experience where you sort of you you started making a, a product for yourself because it was something that didn't exist that and you wanted to see it in the world and you wanted to use it and then it catches on and now you're an entrepreneur um, and <laughs> you need to you know uh, start manufacturing at a larger scale and then so that kind of goes on for a while and. You know, did you ever look at kind of expanding or or kind of leaning into that more or creating, you know, a, a huge breadth of, of colors or, or going into, you know, every different sort of ink? What was sort of that, that point, you know, after it had caught on and before Speedball comes into the picture? What was that like for you? Well, I, I took things very simply. Mm-hmm. I never, um, you know, got a business plan. I never had a loan. I I did it. We started out with four bottles of ink and within the four bottles, when we started making a profit, then I would add on another color. So we eventually wound up with like 25 colors, Mm -hmm. two lines, Mm -hmm. and then accessories that went with that. So um, I did it slowly. Um, And then basically, uh, you know, once everything started running really smoothly, um, you know, I was just taking my time, um, mm. building it up um, as as I would naturally, you know, not with the sense of, well, I'm going to try to make a profit, you know, just more out of the, the love of making um, products. Mm. And, um, you know, just like I did my, I, I approached it like I was making my own art, basically. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, you know? yeah. So, um, you know, it's just a different perspective of how to go about doing this. And then as far as selling it, I never had to go, you know, try to like call people and say, do you want to buy it? Everyone called me. So eventually Takich had it in its catalog and then McLean's mm-hmm. um, wanted it, then Graphic Chemical. And then it started spreading all over the world. Eventually we were in Europe, we were in Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, printmakers are you know, it's it's a niche group, um, and but they're friend, everybody knows everybody pretty it's much. True. So the word just spread, um, and you know, I was known also for teaching um, when pregnant you know, pregnant women would come and say, uh-huh. "Oh, I hear you're teaching um, pregnant women." <laughs> I'm like, sure. <laughs> What is it? So, Milan's classes, but like Milan's printmaking, is that what they, you know, that where they teach you to how to breathe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you know, how to tie an apron, you're nine months pregnant. Right. <laughs> yeah. Do you go over, under, yeah, across? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, and then so eventually, Speedball comes into the picture and you, Pass the torch a bit, but as you say, you've stayed on. What was that transition like for you? Was it sort of hard to to let go of your baby, or were you ready to to take on something new and and let um, let someone else handle the logistics for a while? Well, you know, the the transition um, originally started like 
five, for five years. You know, one day I get a phone call from Walt Glazer, who is the owner of Speedball. And, you know, he calls at a time where everything was running very smoothly and I had it all in place. And, uh, you know, we were doing very well. And I thought, wow, why would I want to, you yeah. know, give this up? Uh, so I said, let me think about it, you know, um, Maybe, you know, I want to spend more time with my own artwork, but I'm not, you know, ready. So um, we had lots of meetings and discussions, you know, and I really, really liked the the team at Speedball. And um, I felt very comfortable with Mm. them. And um, so eventually, you know, we talked and we worked it out that I was, you know, happy. You know, I, I got to stay on. I got to do other you know, projects with them. And um, so it worked out very, very, as everything else did, just smoothly, just taking one day at a time and letting it happen, not forcing anything. And um, I'm still with them. And this was 2012 that uh, they actually acquired Akua. And um, I've been with them. Um, I'm in New York. I When the first when they first um, had to, you know, manufacture it, I spent a lot of time in Statesville, North Car- Carolina, and um, you know, in the factory, I worked with Bud Martin, mm-hmm. and um, we came up with a nice quality control, so you know, they they would be able to handle that. I worked with, um, you know, the other the staff. Oh, everybody took a workshop. I came, uh, I went to uh, North Carolina, and uh, all their staff did a printmaking workshop with me and so everybody got to know the products and I I was just really happy that it was more family and it wasn't like a big corporation taken over totally totally and it's you know we work with Speedball too with the podcast and it's always just good vibes like it just it Mm -hmm. and I can so I can imagine that you maybe had a similar experience where you're like, oh, like they're kind of a big name. And then you start to interact with them and it, you really can tell it's such a special company because every person you interact with, every person that we've interacted with, they have this warmth and this passion that you can tell this is really coming from the right place. And it's just so mm-hmm. wonderful to to be involved in that and have it have it just feel like a big print family. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's why easy for me to let go. And I'm still involved. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if it were something where it was straightforward and like, goodbye, (laughs) that would have been hard, you know, but it, you know, it just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, this way I have more time to do my work. And it got to the point where um, it, it, you know, everything was working so well. And, you know, being a problem solver, I started getting bored. <laughs> There's no more problems to really solve. So then, then I knew, then I knew that that was the time I should let go. And, um, it was in good hands. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds like it, it had the arc that it was meant to have for sure. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I really like what you were saying about not being in a hurry and really letting things kind of evolve naturally. And it really makes me think about, you know, something that Tim and I have been talking about, especially since we've had to do pandemics and lockdowns and everything, is really that letting go a little bit and letting things happen sort of 
as the universe lets them unfold. And as opposed to before, we just had the sense of like, I have to control everything. I have to steer this ship exactly where I think it should go. And if we've really had to take on anything in the last 18 months, it's it's more of that attitude that it sounds like you were able to have that's just, you know, like, I'm going to see where this goes, and it's going to end up where it's supposed to. Um, and, and I think that that is just such a healthier way to live. I certainly am exactly. much more relaxed and happier <laughs> since I've just released that, yeah, out into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like this is a great point to transition to talking about your own work. Because as you were saying, um, you know, transitioning Akua to, to being in the, the speedball family afforded you a bit more time for your own practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, you interact with printmaking in a really interesting way. You do a lot of sculptural work. And so I'd like to step back in time again a little bit. And kind of get to the point where, you know, you said you, you were interested in printmaking because you didn't want to make that choice. So between the sculpture and the painting. And so were you always thinking about printmaking in the sculptural way? Or was there a moment when you were like, well, wait, why does this have to lie flat on a sheet of paper? Like, why can't I turn it into something else? Or was it just sort of there all along? Um, I think as I was learning printmaking, I tried to stick with the rules in school. But I was never good at doing assignments. I always had to change the assignment. That's why I had a hard time with school. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of um, doing an addition and, and signing each print, I just started binding them together and printing on both sides. And that's how I got into book arts. And then the book arts became sculpture because I would take holograph plates and make them the the holograph plate of the prints, which were all printed differently. I did not have the patience to try to make to print each plate the same way Uh each time because there's so many ways you could do it. Yeah. um, so then I would bind everything together. The holograph plate became the cover of the book. And then, you know, as I, you know, like we were saying before, you know, you just kind of go with the flow. And so the books became sculptural books. Then the sculptural mm-hmm. books became sculpture. Um, and then the, the idea of the monotype and how um, each one is different and, that, you know, they could be slightly different. I started thinking of motion a lot. Yeah. And that's how I became, you know, interested in animation and stop motion animation. So I thought, wow, you know, it's like, I should stop here. No, make one more mark. No, stop here. (laughs) So then I thought, I should document this. So then I started documenting each monotype, um, you know, mark. And that became stop motion. And then I thought, well, I might as well embed this animation into the books Mm. so I then at that point I started taking um the the pieces and um inserting um I I would do my animation and then the video um I would use those uh, frames those digital frames and put the animation in the digital frame and then take the digital frame and then put it back into the book. Um, so then they became digital sculptural books. Yeah, yeah. And then the the sculpture work that I've seen from you, um, you know, it really has, it's incredibly detailed and it has this very organic feel to it. What's your actual process of making the sculptures and giving them that kind of softness and that, 
that really detailed ins and outs and just incredibly textured. And of course, you invite people to actually touch the work so they need to also be durable to a certain extent. What is that process like? Well, after I bind everything together, I make my concoctions. I usually use a lot of gritty things like sand, um, crushed glass, and I mix it up and then I paint the surface so that it feels like it was dug up out of the ground. I don't Mm. want my work to look like I made it. I want it to look like it was, you know, sort of found, like it was um, a discovery. Um, So I try to make it look like um, maybe I'll paint um, a surface that has, um, you know, like a moss effect or a mud effect. It's all paint. And I make, you know, my own um, sort of formulations that so it's real gritty and uh, just uh, sort of mimicking the the environment mm, and mm-hmm. how how something may look if I buried it in the ground and then you know twenty years now you know somebody finds it yeah and I think that that absolutely it has that that quality to it where it you know it, they look ancient um, you know mm-hmm. they they they. Uh, look like something that if you were on a, a hike in the woods and you saw it, you wouldn't be, you'd be like, maybe this is an artifact. Maybe it's actually just supposed to be part of this tree. It really mm-hmm. would, I think, um, puzzle people. And mm-hmm. and so I know that, you know, not to to do the, the classic artist interview thing, which is to, to read an artist statement back to them, but um, one of the things you you say about it is though is that you're interested in sort of this effects of time and nature cycle and then how humans impact the environment, and it's I think that that is so beautifully illustrated in your works that for me sort of sit in between something that looks natural and human made and and um, really kind of question that that sort of line I think aesthetically. And and so when it comes to the effects of time, natural things often have this sort of sense of time to them. Because, of course, you know, rocks are forever, trees live longer than us, and yet humans have these dramatic impacts on what is essentially old beings. And I just mm-hmm. feel that in in your work when I look at it. And I just wonder kind of how you came to that aesthetic of being able to capture that sense of like disrupted time in a way. Wow. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I guess I just work from my heart and, mm. you know, I feel things so um, immensely, you know, um, and I also do research. Um, and currently I'm an artist in residence at the, um, New York Historical Society Museum, mm. um, and I've been doing some research um, with a, with Central Booking Art, and um, it's a group of artists who um, the, the focus on um, their art is sculptural book or just books, book arts. Yeah. And so we've been going to the museum and doing some research, but then the pandemic happened, and I was looking into um, antique maps of. Yeah. The, of New York and specifically the waterfront of Brooklyn. So I used my imagination. I took those maps um, and I, I feel that the, they're documents of time and, and, and to press them into a, a book and, 
And if I were to bury them and mm. then, you know, ha- and how maps change and how our environment's changing and how the waterfront is changing. Um, so I kind of just think about, you know, I use my imagination um, of what it was like then, what it's like now, what it's like in the future. So, you know, these are things that go on in my mind um, and they just come out in my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some reality, you know, I think basing it on an actual map, um, there is that reality, but um, the word is not the work. My work is not literal. It's not like, you know, I'm trying to uh, it, the, the story just evolves um, just because I'm working on it, you know, and, and the pieces take time. So every day is different. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm working on one piece um, at a time, it, it the story just evolves from not only the time that I imagine, but the time that I'm present, you know, the time that I put into the work, you know, layers and layers of um, growth and decay. Yeah. yeah. And they, they really look like that. And, and they, they're incredibly detailed and, and you have absolutely lovely documentation on your website. So I really encourage anyone to to go to your website and, and, and take a look, particularly as we're talking, because they're a little bit difficult to just describe in terms of they are so sort of visceral and textural. And what's interesting is listening to you talk now about the maps, it occurs to me that you know, maps are such a way that humans try to tame nature, you know, this by the, through mm-hmm. the use of a map, because the, 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 you know, what's scary about nature, it's, it's the unknown, you could get lost, you don't know what's out there, here be dragons, right? But once something <laughs> is mapped, that fear kind of gets taken away, and we have the illusion that, okay, we know what's there, it's somehow now it's in the realm of human knowledge. And so therefore, we have some control over it, some semblance of control, which of course, is a misnomer, is <laughs> not actually mm-hmm. accurate. But I think that's really interesting to see, uh, particularly with the um, printmaking sculptures, the way it looks like the growth is wrapping back around, or so you call them sculptural prints, um, that it looks like the nature is wrapping back around the images of of maps and kind of almost reclaiming it. I don't know if that's intentional mm-hmm. or not, but that's definitely where where it where it brings me. Yeah. Oh, I I love what you just said. I think that's so you know how I feel. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad that you kind of caught on to that. Yeah. And then you've got the the sculptural books and the the sculptural prints. Uh, organized separately, you know, in the way that you've sort of um, organized your bodies of work. And how are they particularly different to you? Do, do you go about them differently? Are they created differently? Um, what's the, the real distinction, either thematically or philosophically or, or technically, between the two bodies of work? Good question. <laughs> well, I think, you know, my background with sculptural um, books is that a book has a spine. Mm. So I always sort of work off of that spine, you know, like that's what holds it together. So then things are inserted and attached to the spine. So they become um, 
more book-like um, in that relation. Now, when I have a sculptural print, it doesn't really have that spine, although there is some sense of, you know, you know, a balance or, or, you know, if they stand or if they hang on the wall, you know, I, it's a different feeling than yeah. a book. And I, the books are intimate in a way, I, you know, some of them, they're not that intimate anymore because they're huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I first started out doing this type of work, I wanted the the I wanted people to touch them. I wanted them to hold them and and really feel feel what I felt when I made the work. Mm. You know, they're they're soft. You know, there's certain areas that are soft. You know, because of the the mud like quality maybe. Um, and then there's areas that are very rough and coarse. And you know, it's like all these different um, sort of textures that you know, give it a, a different feel than if you were just looking at a piece on the wall, right. you know, like, I feel like, yay, get in there, you know, touch it, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, people would like say, oh my gosh, you know, it, there's a little dust, you know, like some, something fell off and it's like, it's okay. It's part of the piece, you know, it's like, yeah. it's not that fragile, you know, it, it, you know, it changes and I'd love to see my work, you know, I'm going to probably bury a few pieces in my backyard, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, that's part of it is that that's what gives the work life. It's not, you know, total plastic that may just stay exactly the same way, you know, in a hundred years. It, it's may, may change. I mean, that's okay. I, I hope I'm around to see some changes. Mm-hmm. And so with that attitude towards the work that, you know, it has this life where it can evolve and it can change, you know, that's so very much, I think, against very strong art world conventions about preservation and conservation. And uh, the gallery that I work at in Bangkok, SAC Gallery, you know, it has a whole conservation department. And, you know, I I can only imagine um, my dear, you know, conservation lead Phi just sweating like listening to you talk about it you know and just just oh "Oh, no it's it's not supposed to do that I have to protect all the art um because that's of course what they've dedicated their lives and their passions to and so I'm wondering you know do you uh ever run into some resistance you know either from your your gallerist or from a museum or you know someone who who can't really understand that you've put in a tremendous amount of effort to create these really detailed, intimate objects. And then also part of that life cycle is their degradation a bit and and that they have their own life and that as they interact with different people, they change. Is that a bit of a challenge sometimes? Oh, yeah. Um, I've heard like, oh, fungi, you know, well, don't don't put it close to my other work, you know. Right. (laughs) You know, especially, you know, in the book arts uh, collections, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're afraid to bring, like, if it's a library collection, um, you know, because some libraries collect art as books. Um, and they're afraid of, of a, you know, the fungi and contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are others that are, like, open to that. There's a lot of work today that's, you know, this is nothing new. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a uh, I sold a few pieces to the um, Yale, um, the, the Yale Museum or the Yale Gallery. They have a collection. It's the Alan Sharnoff collection of book arts. And it's an incredible collection. And when he collected the works, um, he did not. I mean, there there's so much work like mine 
that they they know how to protect it. Because um, I sold some pieces. I was really concerned because I sold some pieces in like the late 80s or early 90s. And then they opened it up and they, they know how to protect it. They have it, you know, down. Yeah. And uh, they had an exhibition uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago. And I went to see the show and I was so afraid. And they had it in a, you know, can, a glass display case and it looked perfect oh. it looked better than any of you know the works that I still have here and I think because I I don't know how to do that that type of you know cons- conserving I have some boxes archival but then I put work in there um and you know sometimes I open up certain things and I I see things starting to degrade but the museum there that they knew how to take care of that collection and they have an incredible collection of book arts there and all the work looked really good. So, mm. uh, you know, it, it depends on who's, you know, managing it, if they're prepared for that, if it's a library and they have other works that they're concerned about, they're conservative, they, they may not. Yeah. Um, but you know, they it's out there. Yeah, because it's it's listed as preserved fungi, you know, in the in the official, um, <laughs> you know, tally of, of of what creates your your medium or your media, I should say. And is that I assume that also means that it's dead fungi, or you know, like, <laughs> that they're not going to keep growing and you know find their way into some precious 14th century books out there somewhere because that's what I imagine anyway when when I read it but is it actually preserved I don't know I guess fungi are just such interesting things you know and like what what is alive and what's dead and where does one stop and the other begin you know there are all kinds of questions in that way but there's they must be quite safe I would guess if they're preserved that implies that they're not continuing to change at least or spread yeah I yeah I hope Um, (laughs) I, I they're they're dried Okay. And so there's so many types. There's some that are solid and I've never even seen one little dust particle come off any mm. any spores. And then some of them, it depends on when um, and how they're picked um, as well. And, you know, oh, you really? can see when they're really punky, you know, when they're really soft. I, I, um, I will add extra wax. I like to make mixtures of wax with some um, other materials to add that extra, you know, coating that will prevent it from happening. Uh, But so far, so good, you know. Um, So I don't know. I don't really have the answers for it. but I just know what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> right. And I, I, I think that's, you know, a part of artworks and art practices that are challenging conventions and are kind of pushing boundaries about, you know, what is considered an art material is that there are some questions that we don't have answers to. You know, we know what ink on paper looks like when it's 400 years old, 500 years old. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily know what fungi will look like because no one's done it, you know? So we just, we're just going to have to, to wait and see and, you know, use the, the best, um, the best guesses that people have. We've, we've got a show on at the gallery right now at SAC that's uh, an artist who's been using um, 
pesticides because his work is all about the tremendous pressure that Thai farmers are under to um, to really put chemicals on their crops to have a big yield, you know, which of course is pushing the the soil towards um, soil collapse. And he uses the actual pesticides in the work. And you know, he says like, "I've sealed them; they're fine. It's not leaking." And you can still you're you're in the gallery looking at them like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's fine." <laughs> you know, just like the wow. chemicals and it's um and and so you know when we get questions from uh, say like collectors like what is this going to hold its color for 10 years you're like well I don't I don't know because no one's done this before and and so it's it's interesting cuz to have this conversation with you because I've been having similar thoughts about you know the way artworks evolve and particularly when you're using new media the way they might change and that you need to change expectations. And I think also maybe question why we insist on this sort of preciousness and timelessness in works of art in some way as well, that, that, that we resist the idea of them adapting and changing when, of course, change is absolutely innate, you know. And um, there's always that, that weird side, I think, of conservation where you see people slaving over, you know, getting just this tiny bit right and, and, and you know, repainting something so it matches entirely or preserving it. And sometimes I'm just like, yeah, but like oceans are rising, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you see and you're sometimes mm-hmm. like, you're like, I, I hope that, that many more people get to see it. But, you know, like a lot of artwork is in Venice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. like, like that's that's it at greater risk than just a humidity shift <laughs> you know yeah, yeah like so, at some point something will change and at some point the you know the the art will turn back into uh carbon and dust you know like we all will yeah 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 interesting mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um very, very well said <laughs> <laughs> i know i was like i was like oh Shoot, I'm running out of interview time too. Is that is that a good note to end on? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, um, well, I could talk to you forever, and because you yeah. you're a very interesting person um, <laughs> and very thought provoking. Oh well, it's it's really been really wonderful to to chat with you and to hear the story of of Akua that that, that would have been Aqua inks, but are, are now beloved <laughs> Akua inks, and to talk about your work because it's it's really incredible and and like i i said i i highly encourage anyone to to look it up and experience it digitally although i know that that tactile experience is a is a big part of for you you know your viewers experience of it so of course please see it in person if you can and um yeah i just i i really appreciate you spending some time with me this morning and um i i know you're gonna stick around for a little bit and talk to tim is that correct and chat and do some shop Mm -hmm. talk yes looking forward to it beautiful well Well, thank you miranda it was wonderful talking to you you i really enjoyed this interview oh i'm so glad i'm I'm so pleased we got to connect and i hope we we stay in touch and um i would love to see some of your work in person someday so hopefully we'll get a chance to connect and, and do that i would really like that i would too and i always enjoy your podcasts Oh, you thank you. A really uh, wonderful group of uh, interviewers and interviews, interviewees. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Josh Epstein, also known as Totes Feroche. 
We'll talk about his wonderful images of gay men in kink created in the linocut process, queerness in Sailor Moon, being an art class darling, what makes art queer, and the role of galleries in the post-COVID world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.